0: Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key yeah. here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes, and I'm daddy <laughs> Warbucks, okay?
1: Good, fine. Nobody here has any glaring substance abuse issues that almost brought down the company, right?
2: For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Though did not bring in blockbuster ratings, the first season of HBO's Succession, Steadily gained momentum week to week, thanks to the growing enthusiasm of critics, eventually earning five Emmy nominations. Now, with its second season kicking off on Sunday, August 11th, the show seems poised to finally bring in a bigger audience. Created by Jesse Armstrong, the show tells the story of the very rich Roy family. Something of a stand-in for the Murdochs or the Redstones, with their petty interpersonal issues played out on a stage of wealth, privilege, and high-stakes business, With a standout cast that features Brian Cox, Jeremy Strong, Matthew McFadden, Karen Culkin, Alan Rook, and Sarah Snook, the show is wicked, sickening, and very fun. A family drama, a workplace comedy, and reportage of our new Gilded Age. And so joining me here at the Summer Palace in El Segundo, we have Matthew Brennan, Times television editor, (laughs) and calling in from a helipad somewhere in New York City is Times television reporter Meredith Blake. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us, Mark. And now... Matt, I'm going to start with you in that you just have a lot of enthusiasm for the show. I know you really like it. Can you give me some sense? What what is it that you like about the show?
1: Succession does this thing that I think other shows like Billions in recent years have sort of strived to do, which is capture both what it's like inside the 1% or the 0.1% while also managing not to fall prey to the... Temptation to sort of glamorize or glorify them too much. Succession, because it pitches itself almost as much a dark comedy as it does a drama in a traditional sense, and because it focuses so much on those family dynamics that you talked about, manages to make you root for these people to take each other down in a way that feels right for our political moment while also capitalizing on all the sort of like opulent spaces and wild parties and just like the crazy things that these people do with their money and the way that it combines those is i think hilarious and compelling and satisfying and the second season sort of takes everything that worked about season one and refines it and amps it up i called it an immoderate masterpiece on twitter and i think that that is sort of the best description of it it is over the top in all the right ways.
2: And Meredith, I'm so interested in the idea that you were sort of a convert to the show and you, what was it that made you stick it out?
0: Well, I didn't. I watched the first episode or two, the first season. And, you know, I watched the pilot, which at the end, Kieran Culkin's character, he plays the youngest son. And he's the really foul, 'er ne'er-do-well one. Plays a kind of cruel trick on this Hispanic family that's come to the family birthday baseball game. And... I just was like, oh, God, I don't know if I want to watch this right now. <laughs> in, this, in the year 2018, I don't know if this is really how I want to spend my time. And then I watched another episode, and I was like, I think I'm done. And then I think the kind of chorus of praise, at least in my little TV Twitter bubble— was so deafening that I was like, well, I guess I have to give it another try. And then I did. And then I think within about another episode and a half, I was on board. And then from there, I just couldn't stop. And then I had this theme song going through my head everywhere I went. So yeah, I'm on board big time. Well,
2: it is interesting. So much of the writing about season one revolved around that idea that people were like, you're really going to make me root for these a-holes? Like people not wanting to like them, not wanting to be into the family or the show... And yet, somehow feeling compelled. Now, why do you think it is? Like, what is it that's drawing people in?
1: Well, I actually think that it's something about the show itself. When I watched the first season, I had the sense that the first half of the first season was Armstrong and the writer's room figuring out what show they wanted to make. They had a great premise. They had great characters, They hadn't figured out yet how those characters would all fit into sort of the constellation of succession. There's an episode in season one where the family goes to the family ranch in New Mexico for a kind of retreat slash group therapy session. Everything clicks into place, and you start to see how each character is going to fit in with all the rest and how they're going to sort of vie against each other for primacy in this battle to succeed Logan Roy, who's the the patriarch of the family, into running the family business. From that moment forward, I don't think they have made a weak episode. And so I think people's response is really not that they aren't willing to root for a-holes, as you put it. It's that you need to give them a good enough reason. And once Succession started to do that, it became sort of hard not to follow it.
0: In addition to what Matt mentioned, I think that... The central figure in the show, well, I suppose he's the central figure, is this character, Kendall, played by Jeremy Strong, who's the son of Brian Cox's Logan Roy. He's kind of the heir apparent, and he gets pushed out, and you feel for him in this surprising way. So I think that that kind of becomes this sort of desperate power struggle between the siblings, and particularly Kendall, who's a recovering addict. And you just feel sympathy for him, and that builds and makes the show much more engrossing than it might have been if it were just a bunch of terrible people <laughs> um, vying for control.
2: One thing I've come to appreciate about this show so much is what a strong and true ensemble it really is. That And so often you're actually asking yourself, or at least I am, of who is the lead character here? Like, who am I kind of following? And I, I like so much the way that it shifts. As you said, it seemed like Kendall, the sort of heir apparent character, was going to be kind of the main character. But then there's so many of the what seemed like side characters that have sort of become moved further forward. And then in
1: this new season, they kind of keep shuffling the deck. And I think a really interesting way. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the fun things about the show is that on just a total surface level, you can enjoy it for the horse race who every episode someone is gaining steam to be the next CEO of Waystar Royco is the name of the media conglomerate that the family owns. Every episode someone's gaining steam, every episode someone's falling back, you can follow that week in and week out in an interesting way. And then the way that that sort of tracks onto the relationships among the four siblings are, even though as people, they're terrible, the relationships with each other feel very familiar to anyone with siblings. I have two. The kinds of things that they fight about, the way that they fight about them, the way that they needle each other, but also support each other, that has a sort of universality to it that ropes you in, even though the lives that they're living don't have anything to do with the way that I grew up with my siblings.
2: Yeah, I find it interesting how often you are sort of like relating to the dynamics and the conversation, but like, I've never argued with my brother while we're in a helicopter. And so as much as there are elements of it that are relatable, it's all presented in this way that for most of us, we have no relation to whatsoever.
0: Well, yeah, and that's part of the fun of it, too, is the sort of over-the-top lifestyle porn that's both kind of disgusting and deeply seductive at the same time. All these sequences of them going on their helicopters to the Hamptons or wherever they're going are um, part of the fun.
2: And now the pilot episode was directed by Adam McKay, of course, Oscar-nominated for his movies Vice and The Big Short. And the movie shares a little bit of DNA with those movies. But the really, the creator of the show and the impetus behind it is Jesse Armstrong. And he's a really interesting figure simply because by the other people he's already collaborated with, he worked with Armando Iannucci on In the Loop and the Thick of It. He also has written an episode of Black Mirror and then also had his own sketch show, Peep Show, which was very long running in the UK. Matt, like, how would you describe Jesse Armstrong's comedy or what do you think it means that he has really stepped forward in America like with Succession?
1: Well, I think that you can actually see all of those seemingly diffuse DNA in Succession. There is a kind of, especially in season two, which gets a little bit more in the weeds of media as a business. There's an element of sort of Black Mirror-esque dystopia to the media business, which anyone who works in it can say that that's not always inaccurate. Then there's the sort of darkly comic elements. The insult comedy feels very in-the-loop, the the thick of it-esque. But the thing that sort of, to me, unites all of those sort of different properties, and that would be the through line in Armstrong's work, is a sort of suspicion not just of power but of people who are striving for power, are willing to make egregious moral compromises in order to get power, who are willing to bite their tongues in the face of power to protect themselves. There's just this sort of disgust with people like that that runs through all of those properties and shows. And that is what makes succession palatable. Because beneath all of these other things that draw you in, you can trust that it will continue making clear that these people are terrible people. And that is easier to swallow than something that tries to make a hero out of a billionaire. Because I just don't think that we live in an atmosphere where that's possible right now. In part, I think because it feels like they are the subgroup of people most out of touch with the concerns and challenges facing regular folks in this economy in a in a gilded age or in a new gilded age uh billionaires are the villains not the the sort of underdog to be celebrated
2: and to give a sense of the flavor of this new season of the show we have a clip here and so this is a moment where logan not surprisingly is dressing down his son kendall
0: now you step up onto the rack I'm going to pull your limb from limb like a pinata and see what falls out. Okay, so you want what? I want the game plan, what the timetable is, capital structure, end game, what they might accept, what their weak points are, but we'll start at the start. When did they approach you? Um, when did they approach me? Mm -hmm. Did it take long or did you open your legs on the first date? Well... No, they, they took a uh, fair time to persuade me to, to uh, betray me. Yeah. Well, that's
2: nice. And one thing that I like so much about that clip is the way that we get some sense of the way in which the personal and the professional overlap and interrelate when the family members are all dealing with each other. Meredith, what does that clip bring to mind for you?
0: Well, I just, there's something, I'm not the first to point this out, but the thing I keep going back to is there's this, as much as we compare it to the Murdochs, there's this Trumpy quality to the show, which is not that hard to see. And and I see it especially in kind of the father-son relationships. These kind of sons who are constantly put down by their father and are desperately trying to win his approval. I'm sorry, I'm playing armchair therapist here a little bit for Eric and Don Jr., but there's a little bit of that here to me that his character is desperate for his father's approval and wants to get a little piece of the action for himself on the business side of things. And and when he can't, when he tries to stage this revolt and take over the company and it comes crashing down terribly and tragically, he comes crawling back and it's just It's devastating. And then Shiv, to me, is kind of the Ivanka, if we extend Mm -hmm. the metaphor. She's the, she's sort of the political supposed liberal who is a moderating influence on her father and is like also very clearly his favorite in a lot of ways. And she's also the most kind of capable one compared to her sort of doofus brothers. And I don't know, I just am kind of endlessly fascinated with the various ways it reflects these very powerful families who are running the show. (laughs)
1: Matt, what does that clip bring to mind for you? Well, two things. One is that in probably the least showy performance on the show, I think Jeremy Strong does such great work transitioning from the high confidence that he had around the midpoint of the first season through his fall from grace over the back half of the first season. And now what you hear there is him at a low point where he's barely functional. And I think it comes down to the precision of the writing That dressing down scene could be sort of a dime a dozen, but lines like, I'm going to pull you limb from limb like a pinata, make it feel so specific and precise to this family and these characters that you never feel like you're being slapped with like a moral lesson. You are sort of generating those organically from a very entertaining family drama about a bunch of horrible rich people. And now
2: as season two is getting started and we're moving forward there, Matt, how have they kind of pushed the show forward or what have they done that's for you that's new moving forward into season two?
1: Well, besides getting more into the media business side of it, which I find fascinating personally, but I also think is sort of a very apt way of approaching the broader questions about power that the show is asking, I think that what really is clear to me is that they have sharpened Each of the characters, both individually and in how they relate to each other, in a way that it just feels like everything that we were talking about, it kind of needed time to grow into in season one. Season two, from the word go, it is firing on all cylinders of what I've seen of it so far. I really couldn't recommend it more highly. It's sort of like the show that you need to be watching this summer. Although, if I could put in a plug for another show that I love, Um, that also deals with issues of family and the economy on a much different scale is AMC's Lodge 49, which returns on Monday night. That is sort of like the opposite end of the tonal spectrum. It's a little bit new agey. It's a little bit sort of like healing crystals, Long Beach, California, sunny, woozy. But it also deals with the consequences of how the rich and powerful make this really damaging footprint in the world. And I think that they are great companion pieces, and the fact that they're going to be airing concurrently is kind of perfect. Oh, go ahead. Sorry,
0: I was going to say there are a lot of—it's just something that, in general, this kind of examination of power and family dynasties, and specifically Murdoch, is is very much in the ether right now, I mean— of course, there was Game of Thrones, which a lot of people sort of saw analogies there to our current political situation. And then there's also The Loudest Voice on Showtime, which is about specifically about Fox. And then there's a show on that was just on Broadway that's about Murdoch. So I think we're really in a moment where we're examining these people who have so much power politically and in terms of kind of shaping the discourse around it.
2: But is it getting us anywhere? I think especially since most people will never have that kind of privilege or have that kind of power, what is the fascination and what do you think that we're learning from all these sort of like cultural artifacts about these very rarefied lives?
0: I think one of the things we're learning, especially from Succession, is just the humanity of the people that are involved in this, as loathsome as many of them are, and, and as kind of outsizes their political and economic influences, that they're motivated by deeply human flaws and desires, that characters in succession are all basically desperate for their father's approval at the same time that they are desperate to topple him and have something, you know, have a piece of the prize for themselves. And as awful as they are, you can understand it at the same time. And as Matt said earlier, the relationships between them all feel very real and relatable, even if the context is not.
2: Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? And like What it is that's drawing us to these stories of the powerful and awful?
1: Well, I think that we we want to understand their motivations, but I also think that we get a sort of schadenfreude out of watching them suffer. And I think that it is, it is an outlet for the kind of fantasy of political revolution that feels like it's sort of afoot in the wider world. I only say fantasy not because I think that it's not attainable, but because it seems right now something that is still in the future. And I think Succession sort of holds out the promise of, like, you can trust that all these rich and powerful people who are creating havoc and mayhem in our own world, they don't sleep at night either. And I think that there's something kind of satisfying about that idea.
2: Yeah, I find there's a moment in one of the early episodes in season two, and I don't think there's any kind of a spoiler. They come to their big summer home out on the Hamptons, and there's just a terrible stench that no (laughs) one can quite figure out. What is it that smells so bad in this house? I mean, it just seemed like a wonderful sort of metaphor for kind of like where we're at. But then there's just a horrible moment where they've gone to all this bother, and you've seen it in these beautiful shots of like these loving stench steaks and lobsters and shrimp and all this just fancy, fancy stuff. And Logan Roy, the sort of patriarch of the family, he declares that uh, the food has been sitting in that stench too long, and he has them throw it out. And so there's a long sequence of servants throwing out this very fine, very expensive food. And again, it just, there's something about it that that just seems to encapsulate the show, I think, really, really neatly.
0: Yeah. And it also, I think it captures what is so clever I don't know maybe clever isn't the right word but that's what the show does really well and which is really hard which is it takes something that could be so on the nose or maybe even over the top like you know okay here's the smelly house there's a metaphor for you but it works because of the way it's executed and I'm not really sure why kind of something I'm still trying to figure out like in other hands in less talented hands it could just be really clobber you over the head with the metaphors but it works.
2: And one thing I want to be sure that we talk about with regards to the new season, there's a character, Cousin Greg, who's sort of been an outcast, like not really part of the family who's sort of wormed his way into the more central part of the family played by Nicholas Braun. And then Matthew McFadden's character of Tom. What is it about their like oddball dynamic that
1: people really like? So Cousin Greg is a descendant of the patriarch Logan Roy's estranged brother. And so he's part of the family, but he's not really part of the immediate family. He, through a series of unfortunate events that involve a puking at a theme park that he's supposed to be working at, ends up sort of getting wrapped into the fold, and he's taken under the wing of the lone daughter, Siobhan Shiv. Uh, what a great character name! Her then fiance, now husband, Tom Womsgans, played by Matthew Mcfadden, takes Greg under his wing and then proceeds to manipulate him repeatedly in every possible sort of nasty way, while simultaneously turning around and being manipulated by the other members of the family who are more powerful. And the way that it sort of captures the, there's a vulgar term for this, but the brown-nosing aspect of the power dynamics in a family like this, in a business like this, in a culture like this, It's hilarious because it's so excruciating because everyone has been in that position of being the Greg to some extent or another, and I think everyone has probably been in the position of being the Tom. And the ultimate thing about Tom is that Tom is not the powerful person in this situation. He is taking out his lack of power on someone who's even less powerful than him. And if that doesn't describe the United States in 2019, I don't know what else does. (laughs) <laughs> and Meredith, what do you like about the Tom-Greg
2: dynamic?
0: Well, I think Matt put it really well, but I think there's also an element there that, well, first of all, it's just very funny. They have a great dynamic, and there's a many terrific scenes of them together. Particularly, there's one dinner scene where they go to this super luxurious restaurant and eat this rare bird with napkins over their heads because it's some Japanese custom. You know, and it's supposed to be this super delicacy, but neither of them really know what they're doing. But in addition to being really funny, as, as Matt pointed out, there's kind of a mirror going on here. Not just that Tom sees himself in Greg, but that we see ourselves in both of them. And it's pretty icky. You know, I think there is a thing that this show has in common with Veep, which has some kind of creative behind-the-scenes people in common, is that it kind of holds up this mirror to people not in power, but kind of in close proximity to it and what they'll do to get closer to it. And it sort of makes us all feel very uncomfortable because we're complicit, to use a word that's very common these days.
2: I know, and you're actually writing a story about Matthew McFadden that you, you interviewed him?
0: Yes, I did. And he's a very interesting guy in that at least to Americans he's best known as, for playing Mr. Darcy in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, who's a very, very different kind of character. You know, this kind of romantic, brooding hero And since then, he does a lot of kind of tweety British period pieces. And now he's playing this very dopey American who is not just American accent, but there's something very American about his character that he captures so well in the show. You know, he's this striving guy from the Midwest. One of his rivals calls him, uh, I think, a corn-fed basic from Hockey Town. And he uh, captures it very, very well, that character. You would never know he was Mr. Darcy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that I appreciate about it. And Meredith, I don't know if this is something when you interviewed Matthew that you talked about, is the way that Tom is very ambitious, but he is wildly incapable. Like he's not really up to the task of his own ambitions.
0: Yeah, he's kind of a bumbling moron who doesn't totally understand the codes of the world that he's stumbled into. (laughs) And he is learning them, but basically he's learning them by turning into a bully. And, you know, he's been bullied and he's turning into a bully towards Greg. And I don't know how long that is sustainable for. Greg is his useful idiot, but I don't know if Greg will stay an idiot for that long. (laughs) Uh,
2: And with that, I think we will stumble our way out of this conversation on Succession. Thank you both for joining us. Now, Meredith, where can folks find your work online?
0: You can find me on Twitter at Meredith Blake.
2: Come on. You can find me on Twitter at TheFilmGoer. And of course, I'm at IndieFocus. So for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. The clip was provided courtesy of HBO. Uh, thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, and our engineer, Mike Heflin. Listen to The Reel on Apple, Spotify, at latimes.com podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. Coming up to the finishing line,
0: cut the horse. Know your role. And remember: money wins. Here's to us.